0: Let's pick up our Bibles and turn to Psalm 73, the second of a series of four or five sermons on this psalm. We turn again to this psalm of divine origin and inspiration through Asaph, one of the principal singers and prophets in the worship of God. Hear the word of God through Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. That's as far as I'm going to read tonight. The next two sermons will focus on the rest of the chapter, but hear this beautiful word, shall you, and, and keep on thinking about this as we make some comments and preach the gospel of, of that Asaph, uh, Asaph discovered in the sanctuary. Well, beloved, it's a great opportunity whenever you read the Word of God to find something new and something old, something divine, something very practical, something theological all sorts of treasure. Well this psalm gives us an opportunity and direction on how to learn the fundamentals of three things: God, grace, and things. The psalm teaches us and leads us how to be taught ourselves by the spirit to learn the fundamentals of God and grace and things. This is a needed lesson, this is needed direction. For things sometimes can be confusing, as it was with the psalmist. And when things are confusing, like the providences of God, we can become confused about God Himself and grace. Things indeed are somehow not right with us, we think, in certain providences and circumstances. For example, we see, and we see this today, good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. And the question ought to arise, where is God in all of this? Now, we don't want to learn from philosophy about God and grace and things, surely, nor do we want to learn from the Internet, though I suppose, yes, I know there are some good things written on the Internet. We... Don't want to learn also from a certain book that I think I read in maybe the 70s. It was written, When Bad Things Happened to Good People. Heard of that book? That's all you have to know of it. It was totally secular and totally uh, oblivious to the true theology of God and grace and things, especially centered in Jesus. But we don't need the philosophies of the world or the Internet even, or to learn from a book by a strange heretic. We have the psalm itself leading Asaph through his troubled experience and leading his soul to what is called the sanctuary. In verse 17, we talked of this last time, Asaph had a problem with God and grace and things, especially because good things were happening to bad people and bad things were happening to good people. And he was so brought to grief and pain Until, he said, I went to the sanctuary of God, literally the sanctuaries, the three places, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Perhaps that's the reference there. But I went to be with God. That's what he's saying. I drew near to God. Another metaphor for describing having communion with God, understanding truth in the light of God's truth, understanding in the light of God's fellowship, everything we need to learn uh, to live in this world and to live and die happily. In fact, in the New Testament, we know this drawing near to the sanctuaries as drawing near to God by the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 10, we read of this, and by his word and spirit to have communion with God and to find wisdom in that presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you need this lesson Now, beloved, do I need this lesson now of God and grace and things? Are bad things happening to you? Are good things happening to people you know are enemies of God? Is life somewhat confusing to you because the things seem to be getting in the way and you don't feel or experience the love of God in in your life as much maybe as you used to. Well, beloved, with the benefit of the entire corpus of the Bible, not just the Psalms and the Old Testament, but the New Testament, we will receive confidently help from God about God and grace and things. Needed, this is for us as individuals and families and church and churches. So that we may go on ourselves by faith to the sanctuary week after week, day after day, whatever the Lord may send, knowing that the truth as it is in Jesus, that's the answer. That's the wisdom and the grace of God combined for us to know for all of life's difficulties and its triumphs. May God be given the grace or excuse me the the glory and we the grace as we hear this confession of a sanctuary christian three points of good things not good of bad things not bad and of god who's always good well we start out where we did last time god is good and that's the beginning of the psalm here the outstanding theology here that Either Asaph wrote at the end of his searching or at the beginning, it was true whether it was at the end or the beginning, truly God is good to Israel to such as are pure in heart. God is good, because, or God is good to Israel because he's good. He gives many good things, many good things to all sorts of people. James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Good things come from heaven, and that means they reflect the purity of God, the good intentions of God, the nobility of God, the King of kings. He's a good king. He's a good God. He's praiseworthy. Good and great, and great in His goodness, and therefore greatly to be praised. Rain and sun and health and strength and wealth and life itself. All these are good gifts from God. God gives these good gifts in his goodness. He is only and always good. He's morally upright. He cannot do a bad thing, an evil thing, because he is goodness personified, as it were. Goodness to the utmost, to the quintessence of goodness. That's what it means when the Bible calls God light. John, 1 John 1 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's holy, he's pure. There's no fault to be found with him. And indeed, to find, to try to find fault in God is bad of us. God is the God who is the fountain of all purity and righteousness and love and wisdom. He only can do good. In fact, creation itself and its goodness and its providences, revealing the good God, is like a leader. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God can only lead to repentance of those who deny the goodness of God and the good gifts of God and who are unthankful. So in the beginning, God created all, you guessed it, good that's what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2. And very good in itself and to serve His purposes. always good. The whole stage was set up to be the place where God would be the main actor. And send Jesus Christ by whom and for whom all things were created that He might in all things reveal the great glory of God. So, Romans eleven thirty six that of God and through God and unto God are all things. Therefore all things are good. Now God does good as well, even when men and devils do bad. Now we have to understand that. It's not like God is good and does good, and then when evil men and devils come along, then he kind of goes to the side, as if there's a bad principle or a demon in charge of the bad and God just over there and just letting things happen. Oh, the Bible says God is good, and God is God, and God is king, and God is sovereign, so that even when men and devils do bad, God is doing something good. God is doing something good in the first place through people doing bad, through them doing bad. He's doing something good through the badness even of a devil, like the cross, when The devil laid his hands on wicked men so that they would do according to their evil purposes. God was, according to his determinate counsel, doing good. And so Jesus must be crucified to reveal the righteousness of God against the backdrop of the wrongness of men and the love of God over against the hatred of men. Ephesians 1, verse 11, God does all things, and we could add, well according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1, verse 11. Now, so through all people doing bad, you've heard this over and over in this pulpit that pounds the truth of the sovereignty of God, but also to those who do bad, who are bad, God is working good in all things with regard to them. In everything that God sends to wicked people who are reprobate people now, bound for heaven. If you're one of God's elect, God is working in you to turn you to him. But with regard to reprobate people, whom it seems Asaph has in mind here, God is working to disapprove what they do, to frown upon them. He's angry with the wicked every day, judging them showing his righteous wrath. Romans 1. What's revealed from heaven? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Against who? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth under in unrighteousness and who hold God in contempt, just like the wicked who speak loftily and set their mouth against the heavens. Psalm 73 and verse 9. So through bad men doing bad and devils doing bad, and to them, God is doing good. God is always good. God, therefore, even in sending good things to the wicked, is doing them no real good. He's not saving them, nor is he what we sometimes loosely call blessing them. He is, in fact, sending good things even as he does all things with his frown upon the wicked in wrath that's romans 1 that's even second thessalonians 2 and even so that as isaiah or asaph discovered god in his giving good things is surely setting the wicked up in slippery places verse 18 to cast them down to destruction That's what God is doing with all the good things that people have, with all their good gifts, to the wicked reprobate who are bound for glory in the way of their unrighteousness and shaking the fist of God. God is setting them up in slippery places. And the idea there is, whatever foothold people have on this mountain of this world, it's slippery, there's no foundation. Though people might think they're at the the king of the mountain, and everybody else is below them, and they're the Wall Street wolves and so on. They are nevertheless in slippery places. They have no foundation. They have no Christ. After all, with all the good things that people have, and money, 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 billions of dollars people have. Can you even think of that? Children, I think billions of dollars. This is probably fill this whole sanctuary with a billion dollars in coins or in dollar bills, Try to do that. Try to count to a billion. That will get you to sleep. It's a lot of money. But the point I'm trying to make is it does nothing if there's no forgiveness. It does not give peace with God. They have no promise to stand upon. No, Jesus. In fact, the very important implication of the very first verse of Psalm 73, that God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a pure heart, is that God is not good in the saving, blessing sense of the word to those who are not of the pure heart, who are not the true Israel. See, the problem the psalmist has had is that he thought God was good to everybody indiscriminately in the sense that he was good to Israel, blessing them in distinction from everybody else. He was thinking God was not making distinctions. Even though he'd chosen Israel, he was the God of Israel, the God of the promise to Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet he was seemingly blessing and doing very good, even better to the the wicked than he was to the righteous. So God is not good to those who are impure of heart, who are wicked, God defiers, even though they receive good providences. This is the point that Asaph is discovering here in the sanctuary. It means that in their receiving good things, and this is a key point, there's no real blessing. You have to be careful about that. Sometimes we say in our waking up and wishing each other at the top of the morning, whatever that means, what a blessed morning we say that. Well, to us it is because God works for good in rain and sunshine and sends grace in the things. But to the wicked, the sunshiny day is not a blessed thing, not in itself. It's a good gift of God, but there's no salvation connected with it, nor something that is uh, working in the sinner's heart to be repentant, which is absolutely necessary if God is going to save somebody. You see... The blessings, or the good things, I should say, I'm catching myself, that wicked people have in this life, they're not mediated through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, after all, is the Savior of sinners. He paid for their sins, the debt of their sins, and now He sends His Spirit and Word in all things. For the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose, so that life in all things good and evil for God's people is truly good and blessed. Not so for the wicked. That is, the reprobate wicked who will never be saved, who were not chosen, and who never choose for God. They're full of unrighteousness and hatred and enmity. They're children of the devil. Now then, The blessings that Asaph thought the wicked were receiving when they received good uh, providences are such that he was actually thinking that there was more to it, more to a person having a a good bank account and no trouble in their life and their death. He thought, surely there's something equivalent here to what I have as a child of God. That the psalmist was deceived by this appearance of blessing to all is clear from verse 3. He became envious of the boastful when, he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word for prosperity there in the Hebrew is shalom, referring to the covenant peace and abundance of blessing and life and fellowship of God. He was thinking that The prosperity of the wicked in things equated to a shalom with God. But the Bible says elsewhere in in Isaiah the prophet, for example, there's no peace, there's no shalom to the wicked. But Asaph was uh, seriously mistaken about this, and he interpreted God as blessing all men. Very important uh, point to remember here, is the honor of God. God, you see, takes sin so seriously that he's not going to mess around with it. We have a serious God. He's called holy. And he takes sin so seriously that he cannot behold iniquity, Habakkuk says, except to punish it. And the fact that he punished our sin on the cross means that there is no sin that God beholds in, him, in, in, in us. But the fact that Christ did not die for everybody, not everyone's sins are atoned for, means that in all things, good and evil, there is no blessing. There is no foundation for life with God. There is no atonement. In fact, there's only cursing. Proverbs 3.3 draws the distinction clearly. If only Asaph had seen that. Cursed is the house of the wicked. Proverbs 3.33. But... He blesses the habitation of the just. We could go on about this. I won't. I'm going to go to my second point as soon as I can so that we can positively consider how God works for good, even in bad things for us. I need to make the point a little further and more clearly, though. There is much confusion in the church world about the goodness of God and the blessing of God. People are thinking there's a blessing of God that comes outside of the cross, or that is a blessing only of God's good intention to save maybe all men, even the wicked, whom Asaph was envying. And so they'll say that the blessing ultimately depends on people receiving it and not on God giving it. Well, they are open up the cross very wide, as the Christian Reformed Church did in the 20th century, Harold Decker in the 1960s, when he said in the public uh, forum that Christ died in some way for all people. You see, they had to find some basis for the common grace doctrine they'd come up with in the CRC, and they found 40 years later in the 1960s, a common cross. Beloved, if we do that in our theology, if we mess around with the power of the cross to save all those for whom Jesus died, we're no different than the Arminians who say that Christ died for everybody and God now has a great plan for everybody's life and everything shows that he really desires to save everybody, but the fact that he doesn't means he's eternally frustrated because, of course, there is a hell and God will not get what he wanted on earth in all the good things he gave and with the well, good intentions he was giving to the sinner. Beloved, we have a theology in the Bible and in the creeds of, of Christ's church in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition that attributes all power and goodness and greatness to God and to God alone attributes as well to his will something that's powerful to save and his grace and his goodness and blessing, something that comes from the cross as from a great fountain. We, in other words, honor the blood. And we don't say that, well, Christ died for people that maybe they could be saved and maybe they could truly be blessed. We should not... Ever be confused about this? And we should not confuse good things with grace or bad things with cursing. See, that's what would have to happen. If we say, well, good things, they mean that God is blessing people. What about the bad things? You ever think of that? What about the fire in in Maui lately? That killed dozens and dozens of people. Is that, is that a blessing? How do you interpret that? How do you interpret the fact that there's so much wickedness going on the earth and yet God is good to them? Is God blessing them? How about the fact that we suffer? How about that we have a diagnosis of cancer? We only have so many years to live. How about the fact that there's this trouble there and that trouble there? That, does that mean that God's disfavor is upon those Who know only the frown of providence? Better think clearly about this, beloved. Because if you think that good things mean blessing, you're thinking like Job's friends. Remember that? The problem of Job was not just the problem of Job, it was the problem of his friends. When all the things and just about life itself and Job's family were taken away, the friends came by, And they silently suspected, and not so silently, that Job was a sinner. That's why God was sending bad things to him. Or it could be as the people who are wondering about the man born blind, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should have this blindness. And Jesus says, no, this is not the equation you are to make. You're doing the math wrong. Good thing plus good thing does not mean blessing. Bad thing plus 20 bad things does not mean cursing. God's ways are higher than that. They're deeper than that. In fact, for all the good things that the people have, who are wicked and who hate God and who always will hate God, the psalmist is assured in the sanctuary by the wisdom of God that God sets them in slippery places judging them, giving them over to their sins, so that they will be brought to desolation as in a moment. These, he says, present tense, as if it's now, are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image, not the image of God in them, but the image that they make of themselves, their proud boasting and their... The, the way they look and the way they walk with their tongues around the earth, boasting of themselves, God will destroy that fakery. He's not impressed by all the wickedness of the wicked and how they unthankfully and arrogantly receive the good things that he gives. Terrible destruction awaits. So good things are not good. They're not as they appear. What about the bad things? I say of them, they're not bad. And I'm briefly touching upon wonderful truth, beloved, that is for the child of God. You know it. I learned it in a boat in the middle of Lake Superior. Something bad happened to me. Somebody said, Romans 8 28. I said, What is it? He said, Look it up. I had to wait looked it up, never forgot it. All things work together for good. All things, good and bad, for those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That's it. Oh, what a verse. This bad thing. God was working by his counsel, by his wisdom, in his love to me, even though he's chastening me for good. The bad is not good. There's a purpose here. There's even something so good that the difficulty that it is, the trial that it is, I must count all joy, Peter says, and James says, for God is using trials to wean me from this earth. And a proof of his love is that he chastens me. He doesn't let me have my way. He doesn't give me parents, you who have Christian parents, who just say, you can do do whatever you want. I trust you. Folks, as parents, yes, you trust your kids. But if you ever hear that from a teenager, you don't trust me. Say, oh, yes, I do, as far as I trust myself. And I will trust and verify. There's wisdom that comes with trust. Anyway, God sends trials, works trials, works faith in our lives. To wean us from this life, and this we understand in the sanctuary. Just as Asaph understood the evil uh, that men are going to be brought to who have good things and yet who are themselves wicked, he goes to the sanctuary, So, so does the psalmist and so do you, to interpret all things good and bad in light of the cross. That's what we get to do in church, every Sunday, twice a Sunday, three, if it were possible, and four, five, and every day in the presence of God. We get to understand in the sanctuary what bad really was like for our sake. The judgments of God thundering, trumpeting, Shaking up heaven and shaking the earth on the cross. Now that was a bad thing. And if ever a bad thing happened to a good man, it was there on Calvary. And if ever there was something of the wisdom of God to explain it, there it was on Calvary. Because God is wise to take that worst of things. At defiance of his Son. And make the best out of it. Not just as a result of it, but through it. Light, light of what God and grace and things are all about. They're revealed in the incarnate Son of God. And when kings came and offered their gifts, presaging the time when all the kings of the world would bow before him. And he goes to the cross, he dies for sins, he rises, death cannot hold him. God uses this and we understand this, suffering of the Son of God for our sin. And we are able to interpret calmly anything else bad that may happen to us. You get that? Like, yeah, this is bad, but I deserve worse. That's a good answer. And not just bad, but could be worse. Yeah, you can say that. But even maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's good I have to wait. Maybe it's good. That before the addition in my life, there's a subtraction before I can go straight as I thought I would, as a bend in the road. Maybe I have to wait a little while for a job. Just the right one. Maybe I have to be taught, what is it to seek the kingdom first before I seek all the goodies? Three things. I must be brief. But what this good man, Asaph, learned in the sanctuary about bad things and good people, was number one, he learned repentance. When he went to the sanctuary and saw where God truly meets with his people, that is, in Emmanuel, the promised Messiah, Asaph melted away. And all his concerns about this guy over there who's getting a promotion ahead of me, And that church over there that's a lot bigger than ours, and they seem to be flourishing, and we don't. He learns something of how God measures success and goodness and greatness and grace, and that we might look to him. That's the point. So he repented. I wonder if we need to repent sometimes, often, Every day, we're misinterpreting God and things and grace and Jesus and the Bible. Look what he did. He came to the conclusions that are wisdom's conclusions in the sanctuary and presence of God. In verse 21, he says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. He was tormented. I was so foolish and ignorant when he thought to give up religion and give up on God. I was like a beast before you. <laughs> he accuses himself of foolishness, arrogance, and bestiality. You ever learn from the ants, and I'm not just talking about what Proverbs says, consider the ants, thou sluggard, all they save up for the winter. But you ever learn their perspective by getting down in the grass, maybe the tall grass, maybe the... the short grass, but you're down there in the grass. and Then to learn the perspective of an ant, you have to just look down because it's about all they can do. And all they see is the grass and all they see is this obstacle in the way or, or that crumb over there, a very limited perspective. We say of older folks that they have a more limited perspective as they grow older and their, their world becomes smaller and smaller. And I'm sure some of you have noticed that in your parents and and I did in mine when they were alive. It was like a beast he became in his perspective. When he just looked at the stuff around and, and the bad people around and he was not beholding his God in all of it and he was neglecting prayer and confidence in God and the wisdom of God and the Christ of God and all of these things that should have been the perspective of a child of God all along. (sighs) He, a child of the living God, confesses he was like an animal, proud animal too, short-sighted, just sniffing around and groveling in the stuff of the earth, satisfied with that, dissatisfied when it's a bad year or some other beast seems to be doing better than we are. Now that's clear proof that you've been in the sanctuary. I'm going to be asking you that at the end of the sermon. Have you been in the sanctuary? That means God is in your view. And when you come away, he's still in your view, and you're not looking down at the waves, you're not looking up at the mountain, you're not looking at Goliath ahead of you. You're not looking at all these bad things and you're not boasting in your good things. You're looking up to God still because you're nothing then as it should be. Nothing but a poor sinner. One who gets to sing the praises of another, even God. So life is not all about you and you're gaining things or losing things or other people. It's about God. So that's the first lesson in the sanctuary. And then, secondly, he comes to the positive conclusion of verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I, you hold me by my right hand. He's speaking of the present. The things don't separate him from God. In fact, no thing does, does it? Romans 8, rest of the chapter there. Nothing will separate us from God and the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that, dearly beloved? Nothing will separate you ever from God. You can say now, I am continually with God, and he is continually with me, and my hand he's holding. My right hand he's holding. He's my strength, he's everything. That's the most important thing. Whatever thing is with you, or whatever thing you lost, God's still there, in fact, right with you. That's for now. Then the psalmist is able to conclude, having been to the sanctuary with regard to God and himself, that in all things he's being guided by the counsel of God. You will will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So his now, he's continually with God and he is confident that in the future there's going to be guidance of the great Jehovah with the counsel of God all the way to glory. Now most commentators I read said the counsel of God is simply what's revealed in the Bible about God's wisdom and so we become wise and we follow that counsel being guided by it and now choosing the way of wisdom. I agree with that, that's fine as far as it goes But I would say that uh, fundamentally the counsel of God here is the decree of God. The word can be used for wisdom. It can be used for the eternal decree. God's the God who knows the end from the beginning. And his counsel shall stand. He will do all his good pleasure, the prophet Isaiah says. That's the decree of God. And the amazing thing here is then that God's plan includes him and guides him so that he who is a child of God, is guided by the very will of God that determined all things. He's guided, indeed, not so that he floats, as we've seen in prior sermons, but so that he swims against the current. He's guided so that he's still a responsible human being and a responsible Christian and one who frequents the sanctuary. The guidance of God does not mitigate his responsibility, but to know I'm being guided And that bend in the road was good and ordained. What a great blessing. And to know that that loss and that funeral I had to go to and that untimely death were all being guided by God and we were being guided by God through that experience. And to know also that as a church of Christ, we're being guided by God and led closer and closer to Him. That's the truth of the word of God that we find in the sanctuary for such a time as this and all the way to glory. The glory that is now, there's a beginning, the ants are raised from their little weed patch to be above it, and to see down as God does, to ride upon the high places, to sit with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Now, and then to the heavenly sanctuary forever, that glory. So now, the final point. We confess that bad things or good things are not always good, that bad things are not always bad. We also hold on to this confession that you find and make in the sanctuary of the good God who's always God. There was a concept I wrestled with in this psalm here in verse 17. where The psalmist went to the sanctuary of God and understood then the end, the disaster at the end of the river, the waterfall, and the rocks that await the wicked. The word was understanding. I had trouble understanding understanding your pastor is in many ways just a beginner. But what I was wrestling with and what I still do now and it shows in the pulpit is that there's things we understand and this is what the psalmist says here, I understood something about the wicked, they're going to hell unless they repent. And I understand something of the things of the blessing of the righteousness and so on. But there's other things we can't understand. Like, why? Why does God do this? Why is it that the good things that happen to bad people happen to them? And for the destruction and the, even the bad things that happen to me, as well as the good things, are for my good. Why is that? Why did God make a distinction in his eternal decree between me and them? Why? Why? Me. Not why me complaining. Why me? Why are these bad things? But why me? Why mercy to me? Just a wretched sinner. And though been taken from bestiality, he's still a beast by nature, it's a monster within. I hope you all know that monster within. The potential of evil is almost limitless, you'd think, in our old nature. Who can know this? And I'm sure that the psalmist led to the sanctuary, led to his knees, and to say, I don't know everything about this. I understand something. But God, who can know him? His understanding is great and unsearchable. His wisdom is so amazing. Can we know this? Yes, we can know this. It's not unknowable. But it is, as theologians say, incomprehensible ultimately. We see the ocean that is God and the truth of God. But who can plummet the depths of His love? The righteousness of His righteousness, who can do that? Well, beloved, God has given us one place To find it, that's the sanctuary. So let's go there. But we're going to find there, maybe, more that we don't know than we do know, but just enough to know to carry on. So, humble Christian, and I trust you're humbled by the word here, and then I am, let's continue to draw near to the sanctuary of God. That's the place of nearness. Come away from the world. And the madding crowd, and the great rush to get ahead. Come away, not only on Lord's days, but every day, God's day. Come away with your family. Come away even while you're working in your mind. Be at peace, young people. Don't fear the future. God is in your future, He's leading you there, after all, guiding you to heaven. We should be sure uh, sure of one thing, God will always be God. Isn't that enough for you, enough for me? We can't understand things sometimes, or what's good and what's bad, but we can understand that God is God. And yes, he will be seen as God, revealed as God in all things and in the end of time. So are we sanctuary Christians? May sovereign grace be full of them, full of sanctuary Christians, people near to God, and drawing near to God, we draw near to one another. Amen. Lord God, your servant, prays, and we all pray that the blessing of a sermon composed of a man that we trust, anointed by the Spirit, may be apparent. The echoes of your own truth resound in our lives, in our ears. May we show in our conversation that we're glad that we heard God speak tonight. We needed that. God bless this church, bless everyone here, all of us as individuals, as families, and as one family, people of God, people of the cross people who know the sanctuary, the God of holiness and peace, and indeed, who is our peace now and forever. Truly, you are good to Israel, to such who are pure of heart. And as Jesus says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Amen.